You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 2nd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Israel kills one of Hamas's senior leaders in a drone strike. Europe remains on high alert for a return of terror attacks in 2024. A bumper year for bubbly at Britain's House of Lords despite the cost of living crisis. And are the youth of the world's most noticed clock-making nation losing track of time? I'm Vincent McAvinney. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. My guests Terry Stiasny and Yossi Meckelberg will discuss the day's biggest stories. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Well, as the war between Israel and Hamas approaches the three-month mark, Israel may be pulling back some combat troops, but intense fighting continues in Gaza. Meanwhile, Israel has killed the deputy head of Hamas's political bureau, Salih al-Aruri, in a drone strike south of Beirut. Al-Aruri was also known to be deeply involved in Hamas's military affairs. Well, I'm joined now down the line from London by Monocle's Middle East correspondent, Leila Malana Allen. Uh, Leila, what more do we know about this strike? Well, we don't know that much right now. What we do know is that Saleh Al-Aruri, who he is the deputy head of the political wing, Ismail Hayin Anir, uh, leading things out of Qatar. And then, of course, there are leaders inside um, Gaza as well. He was taken out. He's one of the founders of the Al-Qassam Brigades, who, which is uh, Hamas's military wing. And two other military leaders seem to have been taken out as well. Now, this assassination happened in Dahir, which is a suburb of Beirut that is dominated by Hezbollah. They run the show there, but full of many civilians. It happened in a residential building where there was a meeting happening between Hamas leaders. And the attack was on the building, but there are multiple cars outside the building on fire as well. At least 11 people have been badly injured and there are reports that some civilians have been killed as well, although that hasn't been verified yet. And how crucial a figure was he in the scheme of things? He is a very crucial figure. As I say, he helped found the military wing. Uh, he was the deputy political leader of the political wing of Hamas. And he also, one of the things is that he has been spending a lot of time in Beirut since about 2017. Traditionally, Hamas and Hezbollah, which is the Iranian-backed militia that is in South Lebanon, were not particularly allies. And what we've been seeing happening over the last half decade is an alignment between these groups, an alignment between the Iran-backed groups and Sunni militia groups. Iran seeming to think that if it funds Hamas in Gaza and in the West Bank as well, it can corner Israel from more sides because, of course, Hezbollah is operating in Lebanon and both Iran and Hezbollah operating in Syria too. So they're on all Israel's borders. Now, he was a big proponent of that. He was starting to spend more and more time in Beirut trying to essentially engage more and more with Hezbollah, make that connection stronger. We know that Iran has been funding Hamas more and more in recent years. So he really was the sort of forward catalyst for that relationship. And what's the reaction been so far? Great anger. 
Now, Hassan Nasrallah, who is the head of Hezbollah, warned when he spoke in August that any assassinations that took place in Lebanon, be they Lebanese, be they of Iranians, be they of members of Hezbollah or Palestinians or anyone else, would be treated very seriously. We've been seeing a lot of uh, exchanges of fire across the border between Lebanon and Israel over the last few months, uh, increasing their Now, several people, more than a dozen now, have been killed, most of them civilians on the Lebanese side of the border, as well as some Hezbollah leaders. But a strike on Beirut, on the capital, is a massive escalation, particularly in such a densely packed area. Now, the caretaker prime minister of Lebanon, Najib Makhati, immediately turned around and called this an enemy strike, said that Israel is trying to push Lebanon into a war. And one of the issues here, of course, is that Hezbollah has two allegiances. It has its allegiance to Lebanon and its uh, key leader leader in Lebanon's government. So it's really not in its interest to start a war with Israel and get Lebanese people killed right now. But on the other side, it does also have its allegiance to Iran and the people that Iran backs. So they are stuck there now and they do need to be seen as defending Lebanon. So this could push things further. Certainly there will be a response from Hezbollah of some sort. Whether that escalates things even further remains to be seen. But people in Lebanon, those who support Hezbollah, of course, incredibly angry, as well as Palestinians belonging to factions in Lebanon, incredibly angry. But civilians, very angry as well, feeling that this is pushing them closer to a war that they definitely don't want with Israel. Leila, thank you very much. That was Monocle's Middle East correspondent, Leila Malana Allen. Well, listening to that was our panellist, Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author, and Yossi Meckelberg, associate fellow of the Middle East and North African programme at Chatham House. Uh, welcome, both of you. Hope you're well rested after the holidays. Um, Yossi, firstly, uh, what's your take on what's happened this afternoon that we've just been hearing about? Well, I think it's another stage in the escalation of of this war that it moves from Gaza itself, even the border with Lebanon, now to target actually political figures within within Hamas. And Israel said that that's what it would do from day one, that it will target anyone connected with with Hamas, whether it's in Qatar, in Turkey, in Lebanon. So that's the question, if this is only one, the first in, in a series of assassination, one assumes that it's based on intelligence, that there is intelligence and operation is speaking capable of doing that. In this case, it's, it's a drone attack. I think that's what Israel wants to, Hamas to feel unsafe wherever they are. The easiest in this sense, without getting into too much political entanglement, is doing that in Beirut. In Turkey, of course, it will strain even further relations mm. with, with, with Ankara. Qatar is the one to the host, the, 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 the political leaders, people like uh, like Khaled uh, Marshall and uh, Ismail Ania. But then Qatar is very important in negotiating over the hostages and probably the future of Gaza beyond the war. So in this case, finding someone on this level that was the deputy uh, political bureau of Hamas, uh, then, then it, it creates, you know, we can find you, we can help, but without getting involved, we've covered it anyway. Mm. There, there are no diplomatic relations. And given his title, was he involved in the negotiations that saw that sort of rolling uh, ceasefire over sort of uh, 10 days or so? Is that a sign? Is this a sign from Israel that they're not interested in negotiating like that again? I don't think he was on this level because most of the negotiation over the ceasefire and the hostage release taken in, in, in Qatar, so more with people like Khaled Marshall and and Ismail Hania. But, you know, he's, he's an important figure. He was a senior one in the political bureau. He probably will know enough about that and be involved in, in, in some level 
of mm-hmm. of the of of the discussion within Hamas about w- what to do next. But we also n- need to, you know, remember that there is a real distinction be- after the seventh of October between those who conduct the war in in Gaza and people like uh, like Sinwar and Muhammad Def are leading that what happened in Gaza and the political more uh, the political leadership is kind of more in the background. Mm. Um. Terry, if I can bring you in now, for much uh, of the last few uh, weeks, Israel has enjoyed sort of blanket support from uh, its allies. Uh, That has come under heavy strain. Do you think that the signals now coming out are notice that, you know, the likes of uh, Foreign Secretary here in the UK, David Cameron, Lord Cameron before Christmas was sort of saying a slightly different message when it comes to a a ceasefire. Um, Do you think that in 2024, that is going to fade away? Um, I think, you know, given what's just happened today, it does look like any kind of international negotiation or discussion is potentially more difficult in the short term because you're just, you know, as Yossi was saying, adding in other factors, adding in how to deal with Lebanon and how to deal with, you know, Qatar has always been a factor. And then looking across the other side, people are concerned about, you know, Houthi attacks on on shipping in the Red Sea. And so there's, there's just becoming this much more complex conflict, which I think people hoped initially that it it might not be. So I think, you know, there have been calls, you know, before Christmas for having a sustainable ceasefire and trying to get a process going through the UN. But I think, you know, that does still seem quite a way off at the moment. Mm. And you'll see on that point, there were real concerns in the onset of this um, that it could escalate into a wider conflict. There's reports now that uh, the US aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald R. Ford, which had been deployed deployed to the region is returning to America. Um, what does that show about the thinking of America when it comes to geopolitical security at the moment? There might be two aspects here. One, de-escalation, and this might be some discrete uh, negotiations between Washington behind the scene and Tehran to de-escalate the situation, whether in the Southern Red Sea and, 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 and beyond. But also might be a message to Israel, you won't get our support if this is going to be the way you conduct the war in Gaza. Because mm-hmm. now we're talking about before Christmas and after Christmas, but for us, might, Christmas might have come and gone very quickly. But if you live in Gaza, there's a very long uh, two, two weeks mm. between, between people talking about a ceasefire, not, not managing to pass a resolution through the Security Council, the most between Christmas and New Year's, that the Security Council managed to pass is about more aid to Gaza, but the bombardment and the the, the, the level of, of military operation that kill hundreds and hundreds of Palestinians every day, and main, most of them are actually civilians. This is an intolerable situation to live in, while 1.9 million Palestinians are displaced out of 2 Point three millions living mm. in, in, in impossible uh, condition. So I think there can be a message there. At the same time, Israel is moving what they see its third phase in the war. If the first phase was just stopping Hamas and bring the war into inside Gaza, the next is a massive attack on Gaza went by air, drones, artillery. Now they already also discharged some of their troops because most of them reservists and the pressure on the economy is 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 heavy mm. just as kind of in a point the academic here in israel just started last week delayed by more than two months so it shows the the impact on on, on the economy on the education and and the rest so i think 
if they want to continue the war, and some, for instance, the, the defense minister, you have Gallant talk about another year, probably two years of war, it means it's more of a low-intensity war than the massive war that's been conducted uh, thus far. And Terry, just on a, picking up a point from that, the year ahead, it's already been said it's going to be one of the the biggest potentially year uh, for democracy around the world. You've got more than 2 billion people going to the polls, but particularly in those strongest of allies at the moment, the US and the UK have got elections. It seems uh, that there's been a bit of, uh, particularly in the US for the Democrats, they've been slightly taken aback uh, at how the youth and young people are perceiving this war. There's arguments that they're seeing a very different perspective uh, because they're viewing it through TikTok. Uh, but do you think that that might be a, a part of how this war is de-escalated, that those two leaders, Rishi Sunak uh, in the UK, uh, President Biden in the US, really try to rein Israel in because they're going to be worried about the impacts of the polls? Well, I think, you know, who, whether the people are looking at an election or not, there's it's in everyone's interest to try to get this conflict sort of de-escalated and try to work to some towards in the long term, you know, eventually some kind of s- settlement. But, you know, it's, as I was saying, it's, it's hard to, to see that coming. I think, you know, we obviously did see lots of, of protests in London uh, recently. I think that seems to have died down a bit. I suppose the question is, to what extent? I think, you know, bluntly, a lot of people will think this is a very, very big issue for a relatively small selection of our voters and that they will probably think, you know, OK, this is going to play in the background, essentially, for us. We we don't want it to be a big issue that people are protesting about. But at the same time, you know, most voters are going to be thinking about domestic issues and, and the economy and, and issues like that. Mm. Uh, and there are some reports, although his office are denying it, uh, that a former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, has been drafted in, uh, that he's apparently met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defence Minister Benny Gantz uh, to discuss finding countries to receive refugees from Gaza. Now, as I say, this is disputed. But what do you make of this claim, particularly as the Israeli Finance Minister uh, spoke on Israel's army radio on Saturday? Uh, he is of the sort of far right uh, faction of the, of the coalition but said that there would be an exodus of Palestinians and instead Israelis will live in the Gaza Strip. Is this the direction that this is all heading? Well, I don't know. It's very hard to know, obviously, exactly what was discussed in these kind of meetings. I mean, Tony Blair's role in talking to people seems to have been at least welcomed by the UK government a few weeks ago in that they said, you know, he he knows Netanyahu well. They described Tony Blair as being a force for good. And of course, he's got quite a lot of experience as a, as a Middle East envoy in between 2007 and 2015. So he, he does have the advantage of, of knowing people, of knowing various players in the region. We can argue about whether he did a good job in that role. But I think the difficulty is if you've got envoys and emissaries who are doing things behind the scenes, it's just very difficult to know exactly what they're proposing and exactly how much support they have from different governments and whether their role is just to be a listening ear or whether they've got real input there. Mm. Um, And you'll see, uh, so far... um Benjamin Netanyahu has managed to cling on to office and the longer this war goes on uh, the more it sort of helps him potentially to stay in power if he can recover some of his reputation potentially from uh, you know these attacks happening on his watch but do you think 2024 is the year when finally he will exit uh, Israeli politics or the centre stage of Israeli politics? We said about this but if I may two points Mm. A about election in the, the United States in here it's not that the opposition or the other side have different approach to the war. Mm-hmm. So what's the alternative to Biden? Trump. Is this going to have a, a real alternative in terms? Or the Labour Party here, 
you know, we see that Keir Starmer hold exactly the same view as the government. So it's not on this issue specifically that, that we are spoiled for choice in, in, in this term. As for Netanyahu, you know, he overstayed his welcome by, by quite a few years now, but he managed to ride the, the corruption trial. He managed even the kind of the coup, the, the, the judicial coup, that mm. only they got, you know, was at least part of it, was struck down by, by the Supreme Court only yesterday. But the one thing that I don't think he can survive, the, 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 the person that fashioned himself as Mr. Security and surviving 7th of uh, October, because that's exactly what they expect from Netanyahu, that this, something like this would never happen. Mm. He lost credibility. You see it in public opinion polls. Even within Likud's party, you see, you see some of the people that didn't dare until a few months ago to say anything against Netanyahu, all of a sudden talk about him going after the war. This is also a dangerous point. If people talk about him going after the war, he has an interest to continue the war. Mm. Well, turning to Europe now, where Christmas and New Year festivities passed across the continent without any major security incidents. However, Europe's capitals continue to be on guard for the return of marauding attacks, which sadly became semi-regular occurrences in the past decade. Europol's boss, Catherine de Bol, says the continent should be on standby for unpredictable events as the situation in Israel has triggered an increase in jihadist activity. Coupled with the first European Olympics in 12 years, is 2024 set to be a risky year for citizens? Terry, we're here in London, which has uh, had several of these sort of deadly rampaging attacks in the past decade. The pandemic naturally paused them, but are you worried that this could return? Um, I think it obviously is a concern. And I think if you're looking in not only in London, but elsewhere in Europe, I mean, France has been on a high alert for a while. They've had, you know, horrible experience of of terrorist attacks in Paris and elsewhere. And, you know, just when you go to France and even places like cathedrals and stuff have a lot more security outside than they would have done uh, even a few years ago. And obviously with the Olympics in Paris, that is going to be a big focus to try and keep that safe because, of course, you know, the Olympics has been, you know, attacked in the past. Um, and in Brussels as well, you know, they've had fairly recent uh, attacks there. And I think, you know, people were, were quite shaken by that. And with Belgium, you know, in the, the EU presidency, I think that's why they're kind of raising this now um, at the beginning of the year. But, you know, I, I guess there is also quite a lot of intelligence and possibly intelligence sharing about where these attacks might happen. As you say, things are always unpredictable. But, um, you know, yes, there are big concerns, but you don't want to sort of panic people too much as well. Mm. And Yossi, do you think the conflict in the Middle East could spark these kind of attacks again, given we've already seen a rise in hate crimes and anti-Semitism? What happens in times of conflict, it legitimizes violence. And when violence on this level takes place in one place, but we have to remember a lot of this is homegrown. And it's actually a reflection of problems with our own society. What happens there? Is, the, is, is actually emphasize think that the sense of discrimination, the sense of certain communities are not welcome, not integrated. It's, it's, it's the sense what we see, we just spoke about the attitude towards immigration. So a lot of underlying issues within our society at times of war, like the one in the Middle East. You see, for instance, I mentioned earlier what happens in the Gulf and the Houthis, and says what Yemen has to do with, with the war in, the, in, 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 in Gaza. It's all that kind of connects all sorts of dots. And as a result of it, it pushes the extremists to, to hijack the conversation. Mm. 
The problem from a security point of view is not the one, you're talking about intelligence, not the one that you know, but it's enough the one that you don't know or go under the radar and then, because it doesn't take much in order to commit something. We saw in the Bataclan in, in, in Paris, for instance, in order, and when you have huge events like the Olympics and, and, and other big events, then the security forces are, are worried. And on the other side of that, there is growing concern about um, the rise of radicalization, particularly of young people on the alt-right or far-right. Uh, and we've got big events apart from the Olympics this year. Of course, we've got elections across Europe, elections here in the UK. Um, do you think we might see that kind of violence flaring up? And how important is an election integrity in order to stop that from sparking? I, mean, I think the worry here is not so much violence. It's something more insidious. It's the kind of rise of misinformation and deliberate disinformation um, and also the kind of cyber attacks. Or thing. I mean, if you look at, say, the British Library, for instance, you wouldn't have thought that uh, an attack could take that down for what looks like it's going to be several months. And in a, an election year, um, there are all of these institutions that can be attacked. And when you're having things like people creating deep fake audio of politicians saying things they never said or you know, doing things they never did, um, that helps to sort of undermine trust. And I think that is, you know, it may not be violence, but it's still quite dangerous. Hmm. Uh, and finally on this, um, it sort of has been neglected somewhat in attention uh, over the past few months because of what's been going on uh, in Israel and, Ga- and Gaza. But the war in Ukraine will reach the two-year mark uh, next month. Generally, do you think Europe is now less secure or has it inadvertently become more secure because collectively they're taking threats more seriously? I think both. We see more consolidation of NATO with Sweden probably will join Finland, you know, in the process, you know, process of joining. At the same time, there is a sense that Ukraine was sidelined. And actually, President Zelensky, you know, if you see some of his statements recently, he's really upset. Also, his visit to Washington just before Christmas, the idea that you forget about it and go into stalemate. And you see, on the other hand, Putin's speeches are became more and more aggressive. Mm. So I think as a result of it, we might see it's a certain an uncertain point flare-up of the, of the war in Ukraine, then the need of Europe to respond to that. But generally, I think we live in a less stable stable world. And one of the reasons for that, that all this conflict, and there are right now around 90 conflicts around the world, that none of them deals, we deal with the root causes of them. They let them fester. So the next one that's going to flare up is, is unknown and can be predicted because the conditions are there. It just needs a trigger. Well, to the UK now, where the Scottish National Party is claiming that despite the cost of living crisis, members of the upper chamber, the House of Lords, have been swigging the champagne over the past year. Now, using a freedom of information request, they discovered that bubbly sales in the Lords rose to their highest level for five years in 2023, totalling almost £90,000. However, ignoring, probably willfully, that for several of those years, the pandemic largely shut down Parliament and the amount also includes that sold to the public at the gift shop. So what do we think? Ill thought through attempted smear or are you really worried about the corks popping in Parliament at the moment, Terry? <laughs> I'm, I'm not really worried about this. This is um, 1,589 bottles of champagne, which works out at roughly four bottles a day. And even if the entire House of Lords was actually drinking that, it's not very much to go round in you know, several <laughs> hundred people. Um, but as you say, um, a large proportion of this is either bought at the 
gift shop, so it's for tourists or people who've just gone on a tour around, or it is given at, at functions, you know, sort of events which can be organised by, by other people. So I think this is the SNP who are trying to make a political point. They're trying to say that, you know, the unelected lords glug fizz, in the words of their press release, and... I mean, given know, the age of many of them and the medication yeah, that they're probably, on, I don't think they can glug that much this much anymore. Quite slowly. I know, maybe there's one or two people who are just drinking <laughs> lots of it, but yeah, I think they are, tr- they are trying to make a bit of p- political spin out of this. Mm. Um, and, you know, if they said, you know, we've sold loads of mugs or loads of T-shirts in the gift shop, I don't think, you know, it's not to say there aren't issues with the House of Lords, but I think this is probably not one that we should be massively worried about. And you'll see, do you think this actually reveals more about the state of the SNP? Because they've probably had one of their toughest years losing Nicola Sturgeon, these criminal investigations. Uh, might they be the ones that are actually wanting to uh, hit the bottle? Yeah, first, you know, we talk about Netanyahu. There is a corruption trial that surrounds around drinking too much champagne, getting for free and cigars. So champagne and cigars can be the, the downfall of of, mm. of of leaders potentially. But yes, I think this is this is not as big a story as the SNP is trying. They try to again to deflect from from their own problems, and if there are elections soon, all the idea, I think probably a year, a year and a half ago, we probably think about that the idea of Scottish independence is on the cards, and if they do well, and especially after Brexit, and now it seems that the SNP is on the way out, so if they can actually blame the rest of the politicians who are more interested in, in, in drinking uh, mm. champagne instead of dealing with, with the hardships that uh, <laughs> the rest of the population have to deal with. So be it. Mm. Uh, well, cards on the table. I actually did my dissertation on House of Lords reform, so I am weirdly interested in it. And back in 1997, when Labour last took power, they promised radical reform of the upper chamber, but didn't even manage over 13 years to remove all of the hereditary peers as a first step, as promised in successive manifestos. Do you think that that kind of reform should be a priority for a potentially incoming Prime Minister, Keir Starmer of the UK, wants to claim to be a true global democracy? I think it- it's uh, it is a difficult one, as you say. This goes around; it comes around. You know, as well as the Labour government, we had it in the coalition. I mean, Labour did achieve you know a reasonable level of reform, but it is something that just takes forever in British politics. And I think the thing that people are most cross about at the moment with respect to the House of Lords is political appointments. So in the last year we've had Liz Truss's resignation honours even though she was only Prime Minister for you know six weeks or so we've had Boris Johnson's resignation honours and him appointing you know friends and, and colleagues to mm. a lifetime seat in the House of Lords and I But think, it is you know, ludicrous isn't it that in 2024 there are still almost 100 members of the upper chamber who are there by blood. I mean that is that is probably the easiest part to get rid of if you could get you know eventually get a consensus on that but i think that the trickiest one is is the political appointments mm. because you know you you have this strange situation as you say with hereditary peers if someone dies they elect a new one from the remaining pool of hereditary the world's peers smallest electorate. the world's smallest and most elite electorate so it is it is very strange but i mean the idea that you you work for a prime minister for 6 weeks and then you get to be in the house of lords for life you know you may have lots of other great qualifications but i think that is still uh, quite a bizarre situation that we Mm. have Uh, and looking ahead uh you know we don't know when this election could be it might be in the spring it could be in the autumn could even be uh in uh, this time next year it could run in january 2025 but who do you think at the moment will be popping champagne on election night as it stands what are your predictions um 
as it stands, given that Labour is you know substantially ahead in the polls and they have a lot to do to win, I think it's most likely to be a Keir Starmer. But I will just I was reading an excellent book by David Kynaston, which is about uh, 1962 to 1965 in British politics, and one of the great political commentators of the time, Anthony Howard, said, "Yes, in December 1962, everybody confidently predicted that Hugh Gateskill will enter uh, enter Downing Street within the next few months." And of course, you know, Hugh Gateskill was dead within a month. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but it just shows. <laughs> that political predictions, even when they look obvious, are really, really risky. Dark prediction for Keir Starmer. <laughs> yeah, I'm not predicting that. I'm, that's not what I mean. But I mean uneventful. But that has a, John Smith. That happened. To, you know, that happen. happened to Labour yeah, in the early know, 90s. John Smith, who everyone school. thought 92, yeah. they thought would go on and be, be yeah. uh, you know, 92, the election lost. But uh, and John Smith, who died in 1994, who was thought to be the next Labour Prime Minister. But yeah, well, we are going to turn now back to the continent, uh, and Switzerland is renowned globally for its horology. But it seems the next generation are struggling even to tell the time. Teachers in the country are noticing that children are losing old skills like reading analogue clocks and knowing the order of the months due to the ubiquity of digital clocks and calendars. Is this something that you have noticed with your own children or younger relatives? And what do you think it means? Uh, I th- I'm pretty sure my kids can tell the time on an analog clock. I don't think they they don't use one though. They don't really have. They never wear a watch certainly, and they will mostly only look at the time on their phone. Um, but I think yeah, possibly it is going to be a, a disappearing a disappearing skill. I, I, th- yeah, I think about my daughter. She she can read. The, but we just mentioned before the program that oh, we have smart watches. Two out yeah, of the three. Two out of the three have got two, a, two an old style actually, face on them. Yeah, face. So what what it tells about us that we still resort to that? Maybe it's because for the aesthetics of this, or because it's obviously it's more accurate when you have the numbers. That, but uh, yeah, but certain skills naturally disappear. I, I, I see with my students. Did you know certain things that we did? Even searching in library, go and go through the catalog. It's something that's completely <laughs> to most of my students. They, mm-hmm. they just click and they can find, or at least they think they can find everything. So the idea, I take a syllabus and I go to the library and go through catalog. But maybe it's the way technology progresses and then certain skills we acquire, certain skills we lose. And are there any other skills that you've noticed young people are now lacking? Uh, I think you know, the thing that I sort of worry about, you know, you kind of think, oh, what would happen if every all, you know, we lost the internet and everything, is um, uh, read things like reading a print map because we're so used to having Google Maps or some directional app that tells you where to go. And the, the sort of, you know, the kind of the taxi driver knowledge skill of knowing your way around somewhere mm. and actually being able to, if you don't know where you are, follow a map and work out where you can go. Yeah, and I've, I think that's I've something that people might lose. London 12 and a half years, but throughout that entire time, I've always had Google Maps. That's the way that I've got around the city. But people used to carry proper A's and Z's, didn't they? Yeah, I used to do that. You know, as a, as a journalist, you'd be sent out to go and find, you know, you, they'd, you'd have to look up your street address in your in your map and go and get there but you, yeah you did, there was no google maps I'm that and old. any others apart from the card catalog that they've forgotten is it what the, you mentioned it is reading a book is the the critical thinking and reading a book from you know back to back that you do and we acquire knowledge very quickly and we read part of thing part of an article part of a book and we think we don't look at full arguments and, and anymore and I mm-hmm. think as a result of it and again I say through, through my teaching it harms critical thinking 
and how we differentiate between what is reliable information and what is not. And I think this is lost because of the stream of, of information that we are, we are getting. Mm. Uh, and finally on this, uh, are there any commonplace skills which you yourself have never mastered? Uh, I can only do my shoelaces by doing two separate bunny ear loops and tying them together. Well, I was taught at school when I was about four or five that you had to do one loop and wrap it around, and I have never been I've, able to do that, and I, and I still I've never can't. even heard of that other method. I do, uh, like, you two bunny <laughs> loops. Yeah. It's a conspiracy by right-handed teachers, and I was left-handed, and I couldn't do it. Because <laughs> they couldn't, uh, you know, burn you at the yeah. stake or anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> It's the double knot on a tie. And again, maybe growing up in the Middle East, we never used a tie. Mm. Until I got to London, I never wore a tie. I still struggle with one knot. The two of them, I just can't do. Okay. Mine is slightly back on the Swiss topic. I can never remember the rhyme for the number of days in each month of the year. But, Terry, you taught me away a few moments ago, yes, which I've never heard. Yes, this is something that my, my dad had taught me, again, when I was younger. So if you um, sort of describe me as hold, make two fists with your hands and yep. hold your right and left hand together with, so the knuckles are kind of pointing upwards. If you count along right from the knuckle of your first knuckle of your left hand, so that one's January, and the high up bits of your knuckle uh, are a month with 31 days and so February the dip in between your two knuckles there is a short one and then you carry on and then because July and August are both long months your index once you knuckles, get onto yeah. yeah once you get onto the right hand it kind of it corresponds and this works it's genius i don't know yeah, why i've never shown that yeah, i can see are. the reaction in the gallery is also <laughs> being blown away by that yeah Fantastic. Uh, Well, it's time now for the latest Monocle Live session. You may know the artist Will Sheff as the frontman of Texas-based indie band Ockerville River. But he's also a solo artist in his own right. Will Sheff joined Monocle's Andrew Muller here at Midori House to discuss his debut solo album, Nothing Special. Andrew started by asking Will whether his approach to writing Nothing Special differed from his process with the band. For a really long time, I'd been looking for a way to be able to break out of the Ockerville River straitjacket because, you know, it started out as this band that I had defined in a very specific way in my 20s, and then I started to kind of expand the definition. But over time, you start to feel like you have all kinds of ambitions for sounds you want to do and things you want to tackle, and it has to all go into the Ockerville River bag. And the Ockerville River bag starts to bulge in strange places (laughs) and show signs of splitting at the seams. And it starts to become a sort of a expectation. People think it should sound this way or it should deal with these themes. When I made the album away in 2016, I was thinking of making a solo album, and then I didn't. And so I, it was always this. I had gotten to this point where I was like, I don't even know what Ockerville River is supposed to be. I don't really know what I'm doing. And a big part of nothing special was just letting go of any and all baggage. So when I was writing those songs and recording them, I I wasn't thinking in terms of anything other than the present moment. I was just like, this is a song, let's record it. And then as we got closer, I started going, oh, I guess it's going to have to be an Ockerville River album. <laughs> and my guitarist was like, why? It doesn't have to be. This is, you know, you should go ahead. You just moved to a whole different part of the country. It's 20 years. You should just go ahead and call it Will Chef. I kind of embraced that as an opportunity to, to clear the decks on some level and start over. The songs I'm writing right now in a lot of ways are more fun 
to be just sort of going, this could be anything because it's not Ockerville River? Because, you know, you always have a little bit of a sense of like, what is Ockerville River? This is what I wondered about, especially for a band which sounded so as unusual and distinctive as Ockerville River always did. And I I mean both of those adjectives as compliments. Do you get to the point? when you have an established sound and, and there's an established idea of what your band is, that you're writing something and you start thinking, is this too much an Ockerville River song? Am I just doing Ockerville River stuff because I know how it's done now? Yeah, I remember, like, I don't read any comments or press now, but I, I did for a really long time. And I remember when I put out some album or other, I can't remember what it was, there was some Facebook. You always, like, wanted to read the very first thing somebody says about you because you're like, does it suck? Is it good? <laughs> and there was some cranky, crotchety old dude fan who was, like, saying about how bad the new album was, in his opinion. And he was like, this is what an Ockerville River song is. And he, like, laid it out <laughs> in an equation. And he's like, this does not meet these criteria. Therefore, like, it's a failure and I'm mad. Did that get massively in your head at the time? Or, yeah, did, did. or, or you, you didn't just find yourself thinking, well, screw you. I, you know, I'm Will Chef. I'm, I'm, not taking, I'm not taking lectures in what Ockerville River sounds like. But the funny thing is I'm not the guy. I'm, <laughs> I'm just like the collection of cells that like is calling itself the guy that have been regenerated like X number of times <laughs> since then. But I am the creature that has to carry that name <laughs> and answer for it. I was resentful and I was like, maybe he's right. You know, and at a certain point, you just think, God, why am I answering to some other stranger's expectation? (laughs) I really, ultimately, me, and I'm not alone in this, is pretty much all artists, if you get to, you make a record, you make a record, and then you you keep wanting to hew closer to, like, the deep thing inside of yourself that you're trying to express. And eventually people go, well, that's not what I thought you were. And you're like, well, I I don't want to answer. You're You're literally, like, going to buy the ticket to my show and pay for my album so I, I i feel like i have to answer to you but like if i just make a object catered to you like i don't think you're going to like it and i'm certainly not going to like it so i think it was a way to sort of reset to some degree i mean it, it has been a recurring theme of ockerville river and indeed on this new album there's a certain amount of gazing through the fourth wall side eye to camera about the fact of being a singer in a rock band i mean I, it's a line i'm sure you've had quoted back to you any number of times from the thick of it about you know giving you a dollar so you'll do some of your your perfectly middle brow blues but I, I was also wondering about there's a line on the song evidence from the new album when you sing about when you do it all for free it doesn't feel like work and i could couldn't tell whether that's a celebration or a lamentation of the modern musician's lot. I think it's I think it's sort of both. This is one of the things that I started to realize, and it's it's, it's for everybody, is that we live in this world where only about twenty artists are making money off of streaming, <laughs> and there's no press anymore. I mean, present company excluded. It feels <laughs> like there's very little press, so it feels like if you release the best masterpiece you've ever released or like the biggest you know piece of crap you've ever released it doesn't even matter you have no way of knowing because it's like well it's gonna make me no money and get me no press anyway so there's mournfulness to that but there's also a little bit of like well that means that I can just follow my dream now I can, you know, I can really, and to me, art is a very spiritual thing and, you know, it is almost like a devotional practice. And so as I've gotten older, I've gotten more into that thing. And then you you enter into this. Art and capitalism have never fully been like happily Mm. married. 
you know, it was like a shotgun wedding and they hate each other <laughs> and they just have to go through life because like of the kids or something. You know what I mean? And one of the things that's nice about capitalism being broken, one of the only things that's nice is you go, well, I guess if nothing means anything, then I can just fully pursue art and I can say capitalism can go hang, you know. We can do our little bit uh, to spread the good word. You're going to do a song for us from Nothing Special. Introduce the song, if you would. Yeah, this is the title track of the song, and it's kind of the crux of the song. It was kind of a joke for a long time that I was going to call the album Nothing Special. I would it say it's it kind of asking laugh. for it from such critics as Remain. Yeah, and asking for it to me is really brave. I mean, <laughs> I don't think he'll hear this, but I re- there was a guy from my label who. A couple albums back, he was thinking, he said to me multiple times, I want you to make like a bulletproof album. I want you to write a bulletproof hit song. And I started thinking about that word bulletproof and how it's the exact opposite of what I want from art and from people. I don't want a bulletproof man to come up to me on the street and talk to me. I don't want like my art to feel like it is going to repel a barrage of, of, (laughs) of bullets. I want art to feel like it can be taken down by a single bullet. You know, like, I want it to be human. I want it to be vulnerable. I want it to be open. I want it to be mortal. And I started to think about the sort of narcissism that artists these days are sort of, like, encouraged into because of this world where you have, it's cutthroat and you have to try to market yourself and turn yourself into a brand. And how many albums out there have these very grandiose titles and how many people are doing a, a sort of a performance of their own stardom as a way of trying to will it into being. And I started to think about how nice and refreshing and healing it would be for myself and potentially for other people to just sort of strip naked and walk right onto the firing line and just think, whatever happens, happens, because, you know, better than, like, armoring yourself. Um, and so that's why I decided to to call the album Nothing Special, because it felt like it was uh, the most vulnerable and truthful thing I could do at that moment. It's also kind of a reflection of how... You know, I'm not better than anyone else, and nobody else is better than me. Everything is special. Nothing is more special than the rest. And so this is a song that kind of, like, deals with a little bit of my thoughts around that and that eventually I decided to make the namesake for the albums. And So that's what this is. Let's hear it, Will Schiff. Thank you. It's once upon a time I rode with a friend of mine Side by side on the conqueror's route We were set in our designs We were wasted on white wine And our fine satin jackets hung loose We triumphed and were lost But we knew at any cost There was treasure we'd claw our way to and we'd know it by the gleam We had seen inside some dream That was beamed through our boyhood bedrooms When we were nothing special In time I'll see my queen Gray-eyed in blazing jeans And a raven riding boot I call her from the moon With my thousand-dollar tune But in airlessness my words diffuse 
friend who failed and fall in a pattern he was caught, and his family they could not break through. And his love stood aside from the other room. She cried. She was shivering inside a swimsuit. Was she nothing special? That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thank you to my panelists today, Terry Stiasny and Yossi Meckelberg. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Monica Lillis. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Vincent McAvinney here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Monocle.